Hi, I'm Andy Buck. I'm an emergency physician from Melbourne, Australia, and I've joined the team at Critique to bring you podcasts related to the critical care aspects of emergency medicine, as well as discussions about other hot topics in this field. So I hope you enjoy my first podcast for Critique, and I look forward to bringing you many more. My first interview is with a legend in the emergency medicine world, Professor Peter Cameron. Peter is one of the preeminent emergency physicians in Australia. He's the author of several authoritative textbooks of emergency medicine. He's a previous director of several Australian and international emergency departments. And he's also a past president of the Australasian College for Emergency Medicine. He has unparalleled experience in emergency medicine systems analysis, research and funding. I decided to pick Peter's brains on the vexed issue of access block, emergency department overcrowding, and the impact of this on critical care and ICU-type patients, in particular in light of the Australian Government's solution to these problems, that being the National Emergency Access Target and the 4-Hour Rule. I think this interview has some pearls for emergency and ICU practitioners, and will hopefully contribute to increased understanding and cooperation between these two specialties. I started by asking Peter to define access block and what the problems associated with it are. Okay, so um, access block, as defined by the college, applied to uh, admitted patients who stayed in the emergency department for more than eight hours from the time of arrival until the time of discharge to the ward. The the term access block is is also crossed over with overcrowding and and various other sort of similar phrases to describe the situation where basically there's too many admitted patients in the ED and that uh, obstructs the flow, normal flow of patients through the ED. If this goes back like 20 years in Victoria or longer. Um, Mark Fitzgerald has a bit of a joke that uh, access block started at the Alfred Hospital in Melbourne when um, they opened the hospital because they opened the emergency department first before they opened the ward, so there was no ward for them to go to. But uh, more more recently, um, certainly in Victoria, we've had various definitions and various programs to reduce the number of admitted patients in the ED who who clearly need admission have been sorted out and just waiting for an inpatient bed and, and don't get up there and they take up all the space in the ED and basically stop the ED people from dealing with new patients. That in, in the 1990s we used 12 hours, then we used 8 hours, and then we used 4 hours for discharged patients and 8 hours for admitted patients. And, and most recently, uh, over the last 10 years in the NHS, they've used 4 hours absolute for all patients to be out of the ED within 4 hours. And, and, and so, uh, as you can see, it's sort of there's a bit of arbitrariness about it. And in New Zealand, they've chosen six hours. Uh, the evidence base behind the various numbers is zip. But certainly, if you get all admitted patients out of the ED within eight hours, most EDs don't have a problem with patient flow and managing mm. their patients. Yeah, I think it's an important point to just reiterate that it's it's a problem with people leaving the ED either to be waiting to be seen by inpatient teams and get admitted or to actually get to the ward because there's not enough hospital beds. That's what blocks up EDs, not so much the influx. And maybe, Peter, you could tell us about some of the problems that patients who experience access block, uh, what they experience, you know, what are some of the complications of access block? Well, it, what's clear, and there's now pretty, you know, there's tens of articles written about the problems associated with access block and overcrowding of the emergency departments. 
And uh, if you look uh, around, you know, there's been work done in Canada, Australia, the US uh, and the UK. All of them show that um, if you keep patients in the ED for unnecessarily long times because they can't get access to an inpatient bed, the the overall mortality of admitted patients goes up. The um, there are more complications in terms of adverse events. The length of stay for all patients goes up, um, and and even reattendances increase. So there's um, there's plenty of objective evidence to show that it basically interferes with good hospital function. Even apart from that objective evidence using large data sets, there are some pretty obvious reasons why uh, it's a stupid thing to let happen. You know, if you think about it from the point of view of infection control, if you've got a whole lot of trolleys lined up and you've got an influenza outbreak, it's just mm-hmm. going to uh, go berserk. Uh, it's impossible to have any sort of infection control. In terms of old people who are the ones who suffer most, you know, you can imagine an 80 or 90-year-old being put in a corridor, kept overnight, not sleeping, uh, not being properly nursed. You know, what worse place could there be for an incapacitated old person than in the corridor of an emergency department, let alone the dignity and all those sorts of things? So, you know, whichever way you look at it, it's a pretty stupid thing to let happen in the health system. Yeah, and I think that's worth reiterating those points that these people are prone to more medical errors and that has to do with nursing shift handovers, different junior doctors coming and being handed over the patient, repetition of things, um, and just also having people in an environment where people are naturally distracted and aren't paying close attention to all their patients because there's new patients coming in all the time. And uh, it's just it's prone to prone to lots of complications, like you said. And I think, Peter, we might mention quickly you published an article in the MJA earlier this year just talking about the the gradual sort of increase in numbers of people attending emergency departments around the country and the fact that they're generally getting older and sicker and placing a sort of massive demand on resources. That sort of segues with your point about 80 and 90-year-olds lying around on trolleys all the time. And I guess what, what do you think? Is that potentially going to have implications for ICU or quick care uh, services with these people, you know, increased numbers, increased age, increased comorbidities and level of illness? Is that going to impact on the system adversely, do you think? The, um, you know, like the reality is, you know, what, what we're seeing in the emergency department uh, with this overcrowding and access block is really a symptom of uh, increasing demand for the health system. So, it, it, you know, it manifests itself by longer waiting lists, in the elective side and by access block uh, on the emergency side. Now, what's driving the increased demand on the emergency side? Well, there's a hundred things, but the, one of the things that's quite clear is the not only are there more old people, uh, you know, just by changes in demographics, but we're doing more to old people and the community is expecting us to do more and the doctors are developing more things. So. We're providing more services to an older and sicker group of patients. You know, when I was an intern, we, um, if we had a 90-year-old come in with the most, the most potent drug we'd give them would be morphine. Whereas now, you, you, you look at the uh, cardiothoracic surgeons, they're doing CAGs on them. Yeah. You know, so we've completely changed uh, our approach to older people. Now, some of that's, you know, just good 
common sense medicine, uh, you know, fixing up a fractured knot and that sort of year, some of it is torturing old people till they die. And I think, you know, we do need to get our head around all that. But, uh, and the other thing is, some of these patients, if they were given the choice, wouldn't actually want uh, a lot of the stuff that we do to them. So there's a whole discussion and a whole change in approach, I think, that we need for these older people. And, and, you know, people in nursing homes mostly could be managed in nursing homes, but somehow or another they end up in acute hospitals. Uh, even people in um, lower-level residential and, and even in their own homes, if they had better access to GPs and so forth, would be managed better in the community. Unfortunately, what the government's response is to have nurse on call and uh, walk-in clinics. These people can't walk. So mm-hmm. walk-in clinics completely useless. So all you do with a walk-in clinic is get a healthy 20-year-old getting coming in with a cut finger who probably should see their GP the next day anyway. But the people that would they be really useful to see, like the old people who can't walk but who feel a bit sick that day, they can't access them. So it's, it's like they've completely got their policies wrong. Yeah. I guess on the topic of policy, then we might move on and talk about the nationwide solution that's being implemented to access blocking. That's the, uh, the four-hour rule. The four-hour rule. That's called, the, for people that don't know, it's the NEAT acronym, the National Emergency Access Target that's started this year. And it's topical, I guess, that it's being applied first to the, the highest triage category patients, the CAT1 and CAT2 patients, and that's going to be uh, They've actually in. changed that. Uh, because of a review, they've uh, now made it, what they've done is they've, they've said that that is stupid to start with Cat 1 and 2s, but to, to do it right across, but to have the threshold lower. So they're looking at, um, uh, depending on which hospital you're in and which state you're in, but looking at about 70% of cases meeting the target across the board. Right. Uh, so, so in terms of the concept uh, of the four-hour rule, my my on some is pretty simple. If... if the issue is around, uh, you know, getting admitted patients into the wards in a relatively quick time after they've been sorted. Unfortunately, the way we practice emergency medicine in Australia, I think it takes up to eight hours to properly package a patient. Now, there's some patients that clearly, uh, you know, like they've got a fractured knot, they've had their x-ray, they can go to the ward. Yeah. But the majority of our medical patients, you know, comes in dizzy, a bit sick, uh, by the time you do a CT scan, some blood tests and sort them out so they're safe to go to the ward at midnight, actually takes more than four hours. Yeah. And and so I think our present models of care don't fit with the four-hour rule, whereas in the UK where this was introduced more successfully, the emergency departments are more advanced triage stations, and so uh, I think it fits their model of care better. Do you think that's going to possibly have implications to sort of, you know, retrofit our specialty now where people have a bit of fear of that happening now that emergency medicine is going to become a glorified sort of triage system and buff and turf type specialty, which I, I agree with you. I think it's it's madness and if you really want to sort people out and, and do the right thing by the patient, it does take more than four hours. So I'm just wondering what your opinion on it is. Well, the, the, we've got a few things up our sleeves here. One, this is going to, this whole rule is going to be introduced over four years. Um, so, and the highest a number of patients, uh, or highest percentage it will get up to is about 85 to 90%. Uh, 
so in the UK, they, they went to 98% of patients have to go up. So that was a completely, you know, that's a very different thing. Mm. If you look at the you know, most major hospitals, uh, a significant, you know, more than 50% of patients go home. I think for patients who are going home with simple problems, getting them out within four hours is you know, uh, achievable and, and probably sensible if you've got everything organised. So you've got more than half the patients are going home. You've got patients, if you've got a short stay unit that works well, another 25% of patients go there. Now, there's no reason why you can't get patients into your short stay unit within four hours because yeah. it's up to the emergency department. So then all you have to do is get a, a percentage of patients that are going to the ward who are relatively quick up to the ward efficiently. So if, if, if we have proper short-stay units, proper acute medical admitting units, and we you know, have some patients who are able to go relatively quickly to the wards, it is possible within our present model uh, of, of emergency care to do this well. My problem is that in most emergency departments at this point in time, uh, they haven't got their short-stay and acute admitting units working well, and I think that'll take at least two to three years to happen. Mm. And, and there isn't general consensus amongst our colleagues that they want to do uh, short-stay medicine well. So there's, there's going to have to be some change, but, but at least that's not silliness. You know, like what, what worries me about what I saw in the UK is patients were whisked to the ward to meet the target, mm. uh, you know, at three hours and 59 minutes. And if you do that at midnight, when there's an intern as the highest level person up there with one in 20 nursing, which is the sort of thing they have over in the UK, yeah. that's just plain dangerous. Yeah. And so I guess that sort of has partly been reflected in the Western Australian experience. They've just put out their report on their first 18 months or two years. They've really had a couple of years head start on everyone with the four-hour rule. And I guess to their credit, I mean, they're trying to adjust things in the back end of the hospital to, to accept these things. But they're in the report, they do talk about that pressure on junior doctors to sort of hurry up and get people out at the last at the last minute and this sort of shift of work. The, the, the positive thing about the four-hour rule is it's, it, it, it focuses on the fact that the issue is not the emergency department, the issue is the hospital. So what happened in Western Australia is it put a lot of pressure on some of the inpatient units, some of whom responded well, like in Fremantle, some of whom had difficulty with the concept of taking responsibility for these patients. So, so I think the, the overall idea that it's a hospital problem is fantastic and, and as mm-hmm. emergency physicians, we obviously need to support that. But what we need to be careful of, though, is focusing on an arbitrary number like four hours, which may not be the right model of care for our sort of sick medical patients. And, yeah. and, it, and, if, and if we end up focusing on a target rather than the best pathway for the patient, I think that would be, you know, that w- we would be silly. Yeah. Yeah, and no, I think they've uh, sort of talked about in WA the percentage of higher acuity admissions is going up as well. That's like what we've talked about, that's just a sort of a natural progression. And yeah. uh, But that is putting pressure on the junior doctors on the wards to cope with these things. And I guess I think they sort of mentioned something about a potential increase in met calls as well and just general increased pressure on the uh, the back end of the system, which may have implications for the ICU, our ICU colleagues. Well, well I think, yeah, there's... So there's certainly a danger that someone who will end up in the ward who's unsorted, you know, like in that first six, 12 hours of admission, 
certainly a higher risk of an adverse event of some description because you haven't got all the data back and you haven't fully sorted them. The problem, as I say, overnight is most hospitals, other than a few sort of ivory towers, don't have many many, um, senior doctors wandering around in the middle of the night. So if they go up there, there's, you know, no one's going to do anything fancy till the next morning. And, you know, the other thing is, one of the things they found in WA was a lot of the junior residents, say, doing medicine surgery, hadn't done any procedures. So they, you know, said, I'll just do a lumbar puncture in the ward. Well, no one had done one. Yeah. Um, I just put the tube in in the ward. Well, no one had done one. So, you know, there was no one with any practical skills. Now, clearly you can... You can, you know, train people up over time. But, again, you've got to ask yourself whether that's an efficient way to use your your junior staff. You know, like, do you need everyone trained in all these things? Mm. Do you, um, uh, and, and if you do, is there enough clinical material to do all that? So there's a whole lot of questions it raises. Given that what we were doing uh, in terms of all that stuff, I, I don't think our, our quality of care was all that bad. No. So... Uh, you've got to ask yourself, to meet a target, you've got to completely change your model of care, whether that's actually the right thing to do. Have you found that that's a bit of a double-edged sword? Because one thing I hear ED Ridges talking about, the worrying about is that they're, and ED consultants as well, because of this move to expedite people through, that they're losing procedural skills because they're not having time to do these things in the ED and actually learn them. I think it's, you know, there's no doubt that came up a lot of times uh, in, in, in my discussions and, you know, it's a real danger, but there are ways around that. I mean, you know, if you put them into the short stay unit and then you um, do the procedure, then you still do the procedure, so you should do it in a different different part of the hospital. Yeah. So there are ways around it. Uh, and so I think, you know, we shouldn't be too blinkered to... Um, if you like, redesigning the way we do things. But at the end of the day, you certainly don't want patients to be disadvantaged just to, as I say, to get a time target. If, if in fact, and, and it may be better to do the lumbar puncture in the short stay, you know, it may be a, hmm. a better environment. So I don't, I don't think we should say everything has, has to happen in the ED, but we do need to make sure that it's, you know, the right people are doing it. Imagine people who have been trained and they're doing them well. In terms of the ICU patients, and this I presume is an intensive care type audience, I, I think for most patients, you know, like post-cardiac arrest, sepsis or whatever, if we can't, we should be able to resuscitate and and sort those patients in four hours mostly. There are so, so the standard sort of medical resuscitation patient, I think we should be able to do within four hours. Um, and really, most of the time when they stay for 12, 24 hours, that's actually to their detriment because, you know, you, 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 they're missing out on that routine ICU care, you know, where they do the skin care and the bronchial care and the gut care and all that sort of stuff. All that starts 24 hours down the track as opposed to, you know, soon after uh, resuscitation. So I think that group is okay. The one that I do have some dispute with is, is the trauma patient where you're not the one that needs to go straight to theatre, but the one where you're doing multiple imaging uh, and procedures and and observing to make sure that you've got everything right before you take to the ICU. That can easily take more than four hours. Mm. But, but in saying that, the if in fact you're um, trying to reach, you know, say a 90% target, that does give you the flexibility to deal with that. And the other group is the... Um, 
is if you like the people, you know, say pull me beamers or whatever, where you might put them on uh, CPAP, BiPAP for a period of time, give them a go, and then they might be able to go to the ward as opposed to going to a high dependency area. So there's there's that sort of group as well, I think, that um, that could be disadvantaged. So people with reversible pathology that will most likely get better with a few hours of treatment in the ED who may actually be wardable after that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And drug overdoses, obviously, yeah. That's one the ICU love to get referred. (laughs) So I guess maybe, Peter, we could just wind up maybe talking about quickly about some tips for our ED registrars, especially the ones overnight, and, and, you know, perhaps some more experienced consultants who are faced with these increasing numbers of older, sicker patients that may or may not require ICU input. Um, You know, what do you do in practice to to sort of expedite people's trips to the ICU? Yeah, well, I think... Well, I think the first thing is, um, as I say, if, if they're clearly resuscitating, we're clearly resuscitating them on arrival. They're a relatively easy bunch. You know, you do your resuscitation, you do your imaging, and then they're packaged usually within four hours, pretty easily. But it's it's the sort of grey zone patient I think that's quite difficult. So it's, it, it, mm. this sort of rule tends to force you into making early decisions when, in fact, the best thing for many of these patients is to observe in that sort of high dependency area, maybe doing a few procedures and things, put an art line or whatever, you know, just so you can monitor them closely for a few hours mm. and then they might, as you say, might go to the ward or, or might go to high dependency ICU depending on what happens. They're the group, and, and, and I think in reality, I, I think, you know, unless the hospital has capacity for it, I, I think they're better off to stay in the ED to make sure they get the right treatment. And I think we have to draw a line in the sand and say, uh, this is the best thing for this patient. As I said, the percentage thresholds allow for a you know, small number of patients not to uh, have to go to the ward within four hours. And exactly these sort of patients are the ones that shouldn't. Uh, and, and as clinicians, we have to have ultimate authority over which of the, you know, what's best for the patient. Mm. In, at the Alfred, one of the things we're looking at, you know, we have looked at is the sort of fast-track ICU bed, so like an yep. overdose that we know is likely to be extubated within 24 hours. But in the past, we would have kept in the ED, whereas now we're sending them straight up. Mm. I'm not sure that that's necessarily a good thing uh, for the patient. I think uh, we tend to extubate earlier and get them out earlier. Yeah. But, but that's, you know, that's the sort of change in practice that this sort of rule brings in. I think the other thing it might do is force us to transfer patients, um, mm. you know, because there's no ICU bed, they can't go to the ward and they've been there for more than four hours. Again, I, I would be very critical of having to transfer someone for two or three hours extra yeah. ventilation when you know you're going to, you know, that's, you know, that's where it starts to get stupid. And I think one of the things we need to do is is make sure that stupidity doesn't take hold of, of the of the clinical process yeah no i think if you work on building your relationships with your icu and having a bit of a collaborative approach to it rather than stonewalling and saying well no we're full and you have to transfer them or vice versa that you're pressuring them too much when they just don't have a bed it's uh, you've got to have some common sense prevail don't you yeah well well i think one of the, the good spin-offs as far as the ultra is concerned is we our relationship with the icu has always been pretty good but it's it's got a lot better uh in the sense that the ICU is much more proactive about managing their beds. So we, we notify them very early, you know, that there's a nice or potential ICU patient 
and and they sort of start managing their beds, you know, really early from from you know the really from time of arrival. And they'll come down, pop down, see how we're getting on. Yes, we'll know we do need to be whatever. But but at least it's a collaborative sort of decision about where to go forward, um, rather than sort of no, we haven't got a bed, not interested. That, that sort of thing obviously is uh, is not going to work. <laughs> you know, and I think I'm glad you made that point because I was going to bring it up anyway. That's sort of one thing I've started doing now in my own practice, and I'm working up in Darwin a lot at the moment. And you know, you're the only hospital in town. There's nowhere to send anyone, so if they need ICU, they're staying at that hospital. And one thing I do is, as soon as a patient comes in, if you think this is a potential ICU case, you just get them down quickly to have a look, and that starts the ball rolling. And it actually leads to, I think, improved communication. And it, you know, you get ICU input. And often the ICU consultant will come down if it's in hours. That way. You get a consultant opinion quickly, and especially if you're looking at maybe if they're not an ICU candidate, if they're you know someone who you might consider pulling out on. And I found it really helpful because often the ICU consultants will come down and then go and talk to the family and talk about withdrawing and whatnot and that sort of thing. That frees up us to keep running the ED, and that way you get an expert opinion quickly. And then if things change and they end up needing to go, they've already been seen. You're not starting from scratch two or three or four hours down the track with them, which can add. Significant delays. Yeah. I think. That's just, but, but that's where these rules are good. You know, that that's a positive outcome. Yeah. You know, that's that's improved that patient's management. Where they're bad is where someone says get rid of them quickly because the four hours. You know, that's sort of like you know that's the bad side. So the good side is what you're talking about, uh, and that's what we would hope. But we know that when administrators get a lot of pressure on, that gets pushed down the line, and and silly things happen. So as clinicians, I guess we've got to be careful about that. But, yeah, I mean, I think it's had a positive effect on our relationship with ICU because it's been very much a sort of common sense sort of approach. It was interesting when we did our little sabbatical, not sabbatical, our um, our little tour of the EDs in WA. A couple of the hospitals, actually, the the relationships between the inpatient units and the ED had become poisonous Mm. uh, because of this pressure. And that's obviously the worst outcome and, and something that needs to be avoided. But, yeah. but it, it, Fremantle uh, actually worked pretty well. We had good guys who worked well with each other. But, uh, yeah, so it's something to be careful of. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely something for people to watch out for. The other thing I was going to say was, uh, you know, in terms of the sort of drug overdoses, you know, like, say, I don't know, a heroin overdose or a, um, or a GHB or whatever, where mm-hmm. we know they're going to wake up quickly, yeah. we, we extubate them and then put them in short stay. So that way they don't, again, they still get discharged relatively quickly because we know if they go to ICU or whatever, it'll be at least 24 hours before they go home and maybe longer. I think that's sort of where the onus falls back on us, isn't it, to get the most experienced person in ED involved quickly so that they can have some perspective and say, look, we don't want to block up an ICU bed with someone who's going to potentially be able to go home in a few hours. Yeah, so again, it's just common sense, but, geez, I've seen a lot of common sense go out the window. (laughs) Good one. So thanks for your time, Pete. I think it's been a really uh, helpful and insightful discussion about the system that's coming our way, whether we like it or not, around the country soon and is going to have impacts on ED and ICU patients and staff all around the country. So I really appreciate your insights. Thank you. If you enjoyed this podcast, please visit our website at www.critique.com.au.